Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be here. So thankful for a full room and uh, many people watching online and even out in our cafe area. We are so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, on Palm Sunday, as we again prepare to hear God's word, let it minister to our hearts. Uh, looking forward to next Sunday as we come together as a church uh, with many guests to be able to talk about and proclaim the glory and the truth that Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. We are so thankful for that. And if you are a guest with us this morning, I just want to welcome you to our church. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. We are just a couple Sundays away from concluding our study through the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in the second part of chapter 12 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to join me there. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 14 through 29. There's a beautiful road that kind of leads through the backside of Salem into Independence. Many of you probably traveled it. It's South River Road. It winds back and forth eventually comes out to an open area and it takes you over the Willamette and drops you into Independence. It's a beautiful drive. It's a curvy drive and there are many signs throughout the entire road that warn you about certain curves and certain speeds that you should go. A few years ago, there was a story that there was a uh, Walmart truck driver who was attempting to make his way from South Salem to Monmouth and he had gone, what his GPS said, the quickest route possible. Along that path, there are several signs that talk about these low uh, trestle bridges for the railroad that go across the road. Many of you are already chuckling. (laughs) If you live in Salem, if you're from this area, you know that road that many of those signs say that the height of that uh, underpass is 12 feet, 9 inches. The, The driver not paying much attention to the signs on the road, but just listening to the instructions from the GPS, took the quickest route to his next destination, only to find out that his truck did not meet the height. As he approached the railroad crossing, he thought the sign had said that it would allow vehicles up to 13 feet, 9 inches. But as a result, he jammed his 13 foot, 6 inch tall trailer under a bridge that had a clearance of 12 feet and 9 inches. It looked like that. (laughs) Police cited him for not paying attention. took several hours to uh, fix that mess. The bridge won, the truck lost. But I'm confident the savings still made their way to Walmart. (laughs) Why do I share this silly story? Throughout the book of Hebrews, there has been this, this case made for faith in Jesus Christ. And and along the way, the author has taken strategic moments to stop and issue warnings to his readers. These signs that are up to say, pay attention. Because see, here's the reality about warning signs is that they're not just recommendations. And often when we disregard a warning, it leads to painful outcomes. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has paused to, to warn the readers. One commentator puts out that there's a progression in these warnings. 
It starts out by just warning them from being careless about this great salvation that's been offered through Christ, to, to be careless with this truth, this sacred truth, this amazing gift that's been given to us, and just to kind of treat it as something ordinary or something common. But then the warnings begin to become more intense, warning us about indifference to spiritual things until finally one comes to being perfectly satisfied with being indifferent. Along the way, it's kind of like, don't, don't take this lightly. Pay attention and believe in what has been presented to you in the gospel. Don't just let it go by. Don't just be driving down the road and there's these signs that are trying to get our attention and they just become white noise. This is pay attention, take this seriously. And our text this morning is going to look at the final warning that the author gives to his audience. Last week, we saw this illustration that compared the Christian life, this pursuit after Jesus to a long race, not a sprint, a marathon. And that as long as we live here on earth, as a follower of Christ, there's going to be the need for endurance. That there's going to be hindrances and things that are going to try to entangle us, try to trip us up. And the, the author is saying, have a mindset that's prepared for that. Don't be surprised by the need for endurance. This morning, the text is now going to turn our attention to the importance of running in the right direction. So that's where we're going to find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12, Started in verse 14. If you're able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And we'll read our text for this morning. If you're ready to hear the word of the Lord, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. Pursue, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression yet, yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful by it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Do you believe that's true? Amen. It is. You may be seated. Let's pray. 
Father God, we just now ask you to direct our hearts and our minds that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding of the warning that's been presented here in this text. And God, as I've been praying in preparation for this morning, would you go before us preparing our hearts and let the word of God minister to every need in the room. And God, whatever it is you stir in us in these next few moments, would you give us the the boldness and the wisdom and the understanding of how to move forward in obedience. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. There's a part of endurance that deals with the necessity for us to just keep moving forward. This idea of endurance has like a commitment to that, that, that covenant or that, that pledge or that faith we've made in Christ. And we know that it's going to be hard at times to follow Christ. It's going to be unclear. It's going to be messy. It's going to be seemingly overwhelming. And yet we're called to endure, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to continue to move towards him, not get off track. This is a huge aspect of endurance, this ability to keep moving forward. But there's another aspect of endurance that relates to staying focused in the midst of that pursuit so that we don't get distracted and slowly begin to veer off and end up in something and somewhere completely different than God intends. The final warning could be simply put like this, avoid perilous pursuits. Avoid perilous pursuits. What is a perilous pursuit? It's simply going after something that on the outside looks like it's good, but it's actually destructive. That's what a perilous pursuit is. So I was thinking about this passage and thinking about where it is that God might want to take us this morning, where he might want us to investigate our own hearts. I think it is true that all of us struggle with avoiding perilous pursuits. That most of us could come up right now with two or three things where it's like we constantly are just having to remind ourselves that's not of Christ. That's not what we need to be fixed on. But yet it's so strong. The pool is so great that we, we find ourselves just kind of naturally gliding towards this thing that if we continue to follow that and make that the most important thing in our life, it actually, the, the outcome, that finish line doesn't lead us to, across the finish line that, of the race that Christ has laid out for us. And oftentimes, if we follow a perilous pursuit, if we go after that thing that is so attractive and so desirable, and we think it's going to bring us so much pleasure, that if we pursue that thing, what we find out is that it's destructive, it's dangerous. It actually leaves us wanting greater than when we first started out after it. And at the root of every perilous pursuit is pride. If last week endurance was broccoli. Pride's probably going to be Brussels sprouts. I know some of you love Brussels sprouts, so this will be a good message for you then. What is pride? We've heard lots of different definitions over the year, but it's something the Bible continues to bring up throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a constant battle for believers. I love this definition. Pride is a mindset of self. It's a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. A focus on self and the service of self. A pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. 
at the root of every perilous pursuit is pride. A perilous pursuit, that word peril means it's dangerous, it's hazardous. And yet there are things that we are pursuing that are leading us into dangerous, precarious situations. And yet they look good and yet they're a trap. They're deception. They're hollow. And yet the enemy in this world system, in this world culture that's broken by sin, does a great job of dressing them up and making them look like they are better than the life and the race that Christ has called us to And yet the warning here of the author is saying, avoid these perilous pursuits. Don't go after them. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And so this text, I think we, I just want to highlight four things that we see here. Four reasons why perilous pursuits should be avoided. Four reasons that they're not for our good. The first one is this, they neglect the grace of God. Anytime we go after something that's outside the will of God, anytime we focus on something that's for ourselves or we think it's going to meet a need, we're trying to, to meet a need that we think we have with our own abilities and with our own capabilities and our own strength, we neglect the grace of God. It says here in verse 15, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. That idea of falling short here means that we would fail to receive the generous provision of God's grace. That word grace just means an undeserved favor. It's it's God's, all of God's resources being brought to our disposal because of our union with him in Christ. That we are no longer who we were before a relationship with Christ, kind of left to our own intellect, our own strength, our own connections, our own resources. But now we are in him. And now we have everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing that he withholds from us. So we don't have to walk this race alone. We don't have to try to do what he's called us to do on our own. And yet, when we follow a perilous pursuit, we're walking away from what God has said and we're pursuing something that he's not gonna follow us in and help us do, help us accomplish outside of his will. We neglect the grace of God. I I heard one uh, pastor put it like this. It's, It's like Christ... Uh, has this huge pitcher of water and he wants to pour it out. It's tipping over and yet we're like, no, no, I don't, I don't want that. And the word says we can go to him and he continues to pour out grace generously on us. That we can go to the throne of grace and we can find what we need in a moment of need. But when we are pursuing our own desires, we're saying, no, I don't want what you have, God. I don't want that. R. Kent Hughes, a pastor and commentator, highlights three, three things that lead us to have this attitude to neglect the grace of God and to push back on what he's wanting to give us freely in Christ. The first is self-righteousness. When we are self-righteous, we neglect the grace of God because we don't even recognize that we need his grace. When we're self-righteous, we don't see the need for confession. We don't see the sin in our life. We're blind to it. We don't think we need Christ. Typically, self-righteousness is a a measurement of comparison. It's it's comparing ourselves against other people. And we can can really easily diminish other people and lift ourselves up. And when we do that, we don't need God's grace. We don't need his forgiveness. We don't need his abundant mercy and, and goodness because I got this. Self-righteousness. But the second thing is self-focus. 
We neglect, we have an attitude that neglects God's word when we are just totally focused on ourselves. And when we're focused on ourselves, we have no need to reflect deeply into God's word where all wisdom resides. When I'm so focused on myself and the pursuits I'm going after, how many times does that interfere with time in the word of God? Man, I've been trying to get in the word, but I've just been really busy. I've been super tired. I just, it's hard to get into. I'm not getting much out of it. Typically that's rooted in a self-focus. And you know what? We can take created things that are good and we can begin to exalt them as God and make them our pursuit rather than Christ. And it becomes something that actually begins to dry us out because we are slowly pulling away from God. We're not abiding in him. We can say my marriage or my family or my kids or my ability to provide, all these things that are not sin, they're not, they're hindrances, which he, he told us earlier in chapter seven, beware of the hindrances that are gonna get in the way of you doing what Christ has called you to. And it's not saying those become second best. Here's the reality. You can't actually fulfill those responsibilities in our relationships apart from Christ. And you can say, I'm spending so much time trying to improve my marriage or trying to, to protect my kids. How's that going for you when you're not in the word of God, connected to the God, praying to God, asking him for his grace? It probably feels like a perilous pursuit. But there's a third thing that cuts us off and kind of refuses and falls short of God's grace and that's self-reliance. Not only are we self-righteous thinking, I don't need God's help and self-focused, I don't have time for God's help. Self-reliance says, I actually don't need help from anybody that God won't place in my life. And we begin to pull away from church. We begin to pull away from community. We, be, we want to be less known. We don't need that because the last thing I want as I'm pursuing the things that I want is someone to kind of give me their advice on how that's going. And so when we are getting off track and not running the race and we're getting distracted by a perilous pursuit, we are beginning to trust our desires over God's word. But here is the reality. You shouldn't trust yourself. You shouldn't trust yourself. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. This is what the Bible says. When you're gonna let your feelings determine what you pursue, if you're gonna just kind of fulfill what you think is gonna bring you happiness and you're gonna do that apart from God, it's, it's gonna lead you to something dangerous. And the warning here of Hebrews is saying, Christ has come and he has paved a clear path for you. And he's saying, fix your eyes on me, follow me. I've come, I've not only provided the way for you to have victory, to be able to walk in this newness of life. I've also modeled it for me, follow me, mimic me, do what I've done. And he's warning, don't get distracted by these things that aren't gonna lead you to the finish line. But the irony of this is that in those moments when we get discouraged in our, in our perilous pursuit, when we get disappointed by the outcome of our perilous pursuit, we have the audacity to question God's goodness. Here we have been, we've been totally kind of doing our own thing. And, and, and a lot of us as Christians, we've gotten pretty good at having one foot in our faith and one foot in our pursuit. And we can kind of make it look like this is what God's wanting me to do, even though we've never consulted God. And then when the things aren't going well and we just keep finding hardship after hardship, headwind after headwind, we kind of go, God, what's going on? Warren Wiersbe put it like this, God's grace doesn't fail, but we can fail to depend on God's grace. 
So the first part of this warning, why we should avoid perilous pursuits is because they neglect the grace of God that we need to stay faithful to him, to endure. But the second reason why we should avoid perilous pursuits is because a perilous pursuit harms others. Look back here at verse 15. It says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Here, the the author of Hebrews does what he's been doing throughout the whole letter. He continues to flash back to specific passages that his Jewish audience would have known from the Old Testament. This idea of a root of bitterness is first seen in Deuteronomy 29, 18 where it says this, be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord, our God, to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruits. What does bitter root mean here? It means a desire that has turned the heart's affections away from God towards a false God says, make sure that you don't let a root of bitterness spring up in your life. Uh, this idea of this uh, root is small, right? And it springs up slowly, something that starts small and grows slowly, sometimes undetected. But over time, it can start to begin to grow and become more invasive if we don't deal with it at its first little sign. We have to run. If we're going to run well, it says, if we're going to make sure that we make it across the finish line, if we're gonna stay on the course that Christ has laid out for us, it says we have to make sure that we avoid this root of bitterness. Because this bitterness not only impacts us individually, it, uh, it impacts everyone around us. It says that it springs up causing trouble and defiling many. Our perilous pursuits leave a wake. If you've ever been on a, on a river or a lake, maybe doing something relaxing, maybe you're just floating or you're fishing and it's calm and it's beautiful. And then there comes the big jet boat through. And you're there just trying to enjoy the calm serenity and peacefulness of this beautiful time. And there's someone there that's coming through, just rip roaring through. And then you have to kind of for the, the you know, for however long it takes, you're doing the, the rock thing, the wake that's left behind. This is the idea of a perilous pursuit is that we might think that, you know, I'm kind of doing these things and yeah, they might not be the best, but you know, it's not really impacting anybody else. But the reality is here is that when we let a root of bitterness, when we let an affection come up in our hearts that turns us away from God and begins to follow something that's not God, that we've replaced God with, it won't just impact you personally. It'll impact everybody else in your life. And so he's saying, avoid these perilous pursuits because it's not going to be about just what the harm it's going to do to you. It's going to be harmful to those who are around you. We know this to be true if we've struggled with addiction. We know this to be true if we've struggled with a pursuit of significance in our job or our work. We know this has been true when we've elevated a relationship, even if it might not be a godly relationship, over our relationship with God. Our family, friends, and neighbors are all impacted by our perilous pursuits. And so he says, make sure that you don't just think so limited and so self-focused that you think that this is not going to impact others. It will. 
We should avoid perilous pursuits because they harm others. But there's a third reason why we should avoid perilous pursuits, and that is because they rob us of spiritual blessing. In verse 16, it says this, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. How much would you pay for a single meal? I did a survey this week of the most expensive meal in the world. And I found an answer on multiple websites. The most most expensive meal is known as the Gran Velas Los Cabos Taco. A taco. This taco at a luxury resort in Mexico that gives it that it's named after costs twenty-five thousand dollars. This is not a Taco Bell taco. <laughs> Listen to the ingredients. It has a corn tortilla flaked in edible gold. And inside that, Kobe beef, langoustine, beluga caviar, brie cheese, and black truffle. The salsa on top is no less decadent, made from a certain chili and the most expensive coffee in the world. $25,000 for a taco. Esau, we know his story was that he came in from a day of being out. He, he was out hunting. He came in. He was so hungry And he comes in and his brother, Jacob, is making soup. And he's like, I'm so hungry. I'm about to die. Give me some soup. And his brother, being a deceiver, said, all right, give give me your birthright. The birthright was given to the firstborn child. The birthright meant that you got a double portion of all your father owned. It was a very significant blessing that was given specifically to the firstborn and Esau said, okay, I'll give you this because I'm so hungry. I want a bowl of soup. Not the Los Cabos Cabos taco, a bowl of soup. See, the example here of Esau is more than a warning against immorality and irreverence. It says, make sure there's not any of you that are immoral or irreverent like Esau. Those are noticeable and like obvious sins, like immorality and irreverence towards God, you know, pursuing things that are sinful. That is obvious. But there's a, there's a bigger point that I think the author's trying to make here. And that is this, that perilous pursuits glorify momentary payoff, even at the risk of forfeiting something better. Anytime we're going after a perilous pursuit, anytime we're trying to seek something in our own ability for our own desires to to fulfill our own passions, we will be easily convinced that that momentary pleasure is worth forfeiting something much better. See, Esau traded away his birthright for a bowl of soup. He traded away something that was going to be just a moment, something that wasn't even that great or something that was going to be far greater in the future. Because when we are focusing and when we are on that pathway of a perilous pursuit, we are hyper-focused on the physical rather than the spiritual. And I think that's the point being made here. Speaking to these Jewish believers who were being, they were, it was hard to be a follower of Christ. It was requiring them to sacrifice a lot and they were facing a lot of opposition and they were wondering, is it worth it? And he spent 11 chapters saying, it is. 
Everything else that you've placed value in, everything that you feel like you've had to give up on to follow Christ, if you go back to it, it is a lesser thing. Christ is better, better promises, better priest, better sacrifice. He's better in every way. And as they're considering this, he's saying, make sure that you don't get pulled off of that pursuit of following Christ and running the race after him to to exchange it for something that you think is going to be better when it's not. It's just going to be momentary and it's going to be fleeting and then it's going to be gone and you're going to be left with a bunch of regret. He, He uses this illustration later on at the end of this chapter talking about things that can be shaken versus something that can't be shaken. It's talking about that there's coming a time where the world's going to be judged and the, the things of this world that are simple or broken are going to be ju- they're going to be shaken, they're going to be dealt with justly. But what we have in Christ is unshakable. The kingdom that he's wanting to give us, this this life that he's offering, nothing in this world can take that away from us. I love what it says in First Peter chapter one, where it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The third reason we need to avoid perilous pursuits is Why? because they rob us of spiritual blessing. We think that the thing we're pursuing is gonna bring us so much happiness and so much fulfillment and it's gonna be the, the purpose and reason for living. And even if we are, most of the time we're not even able to attain it and we kind of look back at life going, was that a whole waste? But sometimes we are able to secure it, achieve it, accomplish it, and then we get to it. And how many people do you know that have all the money in the world, have all the fame, have all the success, have all the power, and they're going, is this it? And yet we think for some reason because we've been deceived that we'll be the exception that if we can get it, we truly will be satisfied. And the author loves us so much to say, stop it. Stop it. Get your eyes off those perilous pursuits. Put them back on Christ. They rob us of spiritual blessing, but there's one more reason why we need to avoid spiritual or perilous pursuits, excuse me. And that is because they lead away from God. A selfish pursuit will never lead you into fellowship with God. We can think of perilous pursuits as things that are obviously immoral, but there's something that's highlighted here in this text that reminds us that both legalism and licentiousness are both perilous pursuits. Both are forms of pride. For some people, they think, yeah, don't go after perilous pursuits where you're just obviously going after sinful things and living it up and things that are like offensive and gross to God. We would all probably say, yeah, that's wrong. God's word's pretty clear. This is good. These are evil. Stay away from evil things. But what he's also highlighting here is, but don't trick yourself to think that if you just focus on legalism, which is I'm going to earn my righteousness. I'm going to earn God's approval, but my obedience to God's word and the memorization of God's verses and the way I serve him, Apart from him, not, not with him, not because he's in me producing that in me, but I'm going to earn my righteousness through my works, through my efforts. Don't think that that's any better than just living it up for today. They're both a means, a perilous pursuit of you trying to do something on your own to secure something for yourself outside of God's will. He goes here and he contrasts two covenants. The old covenant under the law, he describes it. Here he talks about that you have not come, verse 18, to what could be touched. 
to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken for they could not bear what was being commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Here he's talking about the, the, them being around Mount Sinai when God is giving them the 10 commandments. And these 10 commandments were the things that they were wondering, should I go back to following the 10 commandments, you know, following the law and trying to earn God's favor through obedience to the law. And he's like, you wanna go back to that? He's describing this old covenant that was under the law as something physical, which means it's temporary, it's shakable. He describes it as terrifying, as demanding, rooted in self-righteousness, a law that says, I'm gonna try to obey these things in order for God to love me. He said, don't go back to that. Pursue what Christ has given us. And then he begins to unpack here in verses 22 through 24, the new covenant, which is under grace. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which is better, says better things than the blood of Abel. He's saying here, don't follow a perilous pursuit of legalism, trying to obey law. Don't go back to this, this self-righteous spirituality, this religion that you think is going to be what God's gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Look at all that you did apart from me, for me. He says, don't go back to that. That kind of living is terrifying because here's the thing, that God is a holy God with a very high standard and you're gonna to try to do your best and you're gonna have no idea if you've done enough and you're gonna stand before him trembling and fearful to hear fail. And yet he's saying, live under this new covenant, a covenant of grace that is not physical, it's spiritual. It's not terrifying, it's inviting. It's not demanding, it's generous because it's not based on your self-righteousness. It's based on spirit dependence. John Phillips in his commentary says this, the old covenant made distance with God an imperative, a command, but the new covenant makes distance impossible. When we go after perilous pursuits, when we try to, try to be a good person, be a good Christian, be a follower of Christ, do things for God apart from him, that's not accomplishing his will either. And he's saying, avoid that perilous pursuit of self-righteousness through religion because it actually is gonna lead you away from God. It's gonna, it's gonna put you at distance. It's not gonna bring you close to him. I've had the opportunity for the last several years to, to watch my, my two sons run cross country. If you've never been to a cross country race, it's, it's interesting uh, to be a spectator at because it's typically in huge, large parks. So you see them maybe at the beginning and at the end and you hope they did well. Uh, the last couple of years, they had the opportunity to run this massive cross country race up in Portland called the Nike Invitational at Blue Lake Park right by the gorge and it's a, it's a huge park and the, the course map is kind of confusing. They go in a couple circles and they go out and come back and then it's just, it's massive. And along that path, there's all kinds of flags and there's people you know, trying to keep it so that you know where to go because it's easy. There's, there's thousands of people running at the same time and so it's easy that you could follow somebody you think you're behind and then you get off course and then you get disqualified. 
So the importance it for the, not only for the parents, because this map's been helpful for me just to know where to stand, but for the runners, it's very important for them to know like what, where is the race that they're running in? How do they start it? And where are they going to finish? And how do they get there? The important thing for us to be considering as we get to the end of this book of Hebrews is what is it then that we should be pursuing? He's made a case for follow Christ, fix your eyes on Christ. What does that look like practically? And right here in verse 14, I believe he gives us the map. Last week he says, get ready to run the race that lies before you with endurance. And the question obviously to me is a question asker is, well, what's the race? What is it then, Lord, that you want me to be pursuing? And he says it right here in verse 14, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. You see, the pursuit of these two things is a pursuit of Christ because it is Christ who is the perfection of both peace and holiness. It's the spirit of God that produces peace in us that allows us to be at peace with other people. It's the grace of God that allows us to be forgiving and patient and long-suffering and self-controlled and loving and kind to all those people around us who are irritating and irritable and annoying and sinful and harsh This call to be at peace with everyone is meaning that I'm going to pursue Christ because then he's going to produce this in me and he's going to allow me to be at peace with everyone. Because being at peace with everyone doesn't mean that I'm going to make them be at peace with me. One passage says that as far as it has to do with you, be at peace with all people, meaning you do your part. You can't control them, but you can actually be at peace with people because you're going to be settled in Christ, knowing that you've done everything you could to seek unity through the bond of peace. But then he says to pursue holiness not become holy, this, this legalism that says become holy so then God will approve you. It says now because you stand approved in God's presence, allow him to do that sanctifying work in you. This word holiness that we're supposed to be pursuing is letting him make us holy, letting him refine us, letting him change us from who we were before Christ to who we now are in Christ. That's the pursuit. That's what every day we're laying aside the hindrances and the sins that so easily entangle so that we can fix our eyes on Christ and we can allow him to do his work in our lives. That he can begin to lead us and guide us every step of the way of this race, changing us not into a better version of ourselves, but changing us into him, into his likeness. And so the goal of this race isn't attaining something physical, The goal of the Christian life is to pursue something that is spiritual. And to achieve that spiritually means that we cannot pursue it physically. Both peace and holiness require the opposite of pride, humility. A humility to say, God, I want to pursue you. I want to be holy for you are holy. I want to be that intimate in my fellowship with you. I want to be united with you, but I can't do that. You have to do that work. So I humbly come before you and I'm, I'm going to allow you, I'm going to abide in you. I'm going to allow you through in great endurance, through the process of the rest of my days, I'm going to allow you to continue to start the process of transformation that one day will ultimately be fulfilled when I stand in your presence and glorification and that sin nature is removed and I stand before you as your son or daughter, child in the Lord, redeemed in Christ's likeness. That's the race. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so he's saying, as you begin to run this race, 
Let me just give you a warning and please pay attention to it. Don't, don't think that this is a warning for somebody else and don't think for a moment that this is just a recommendation like sometimes we view speed limit signs. No, this is my call to you. Avoid perilous pursuits. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't allow yourself to get off course, distracted by something else that you think is gonna be a shortcut or a better conclusion. Follow me. Follow me. And so the key question for us this morning as we leave is what are you pursuing? I know for me, this is a a very convicting question. What are you pursuing? The apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter four says this. He's at the end of his life. He's writing to his, one of his students, Timothy. And he says this, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Let this be our pursuit. Let this be our goal. Let this be our passion. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we consider our lives, as we consider what we're pursuing. God, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit and God's word to convict, to counsel, to correct. God, that you would use your word to show us where we're out of step, where we've gotten off course and that you would gently through your word, it says, cleanse us or restore us or to help us be back on the right path. God, you, you know that as we remain here on earth, there are so many perilous pursuits that, that look like light. They look like they're good things and yet they are dangerous. They are not of you. And yet we need your help, Lord, because we can't always recognize them. We can't always see them. So God, would you just continue to be faithful to your promise to show us that you are a gracious God? Would you continue to know that, let us know that when we do fall down or we do get off course that you are gracious and loving to help us get back to the path. God, would you just keep us aware of our need for your grace, that you would keep us drinking from your word, going to it daily for our instruction. And would you allow your church to be a part of that group of witnesses that comes alongside and cheers us on that we would hold each other up and encourage each other to be faithful to Christ until the end. God, we love you and we thank you for giving us something worth pursuing. I pray that you would help us do that today in your son's name. Amen.